A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips. For just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 43. This, this episode right here is a big one. It's an important episode, but it is a very large episode, so I hope I'll have your attention for the next several minutes. We're talking about the peace treaties today, we're talking about the pieces of the peace that almost came together, and we're talking about the pieces of the peace that looks like they were going to come together and didn't for various reasons. So in the last episode, we brought our analysis of the Truman-MacArthur controversy to a pretty epic conclusion. I have got some great feedback since you guys listened to that episode, and the audio analysis I took near the end of it in particular has come up for a lot of praise, which I really appreciate. I loved being able to bring all that stuff to you guys. I feel like the medium of podcasting really shines when you can do things like that. So thanks so much for being a part of it. And make sure you tell other people that if they want to hear MacArthur go on and on about how great he was and how unfair everything is, by all means listen to episode 42 of the Korean War. After concluding that aspect of the Korean War though, we're now ready to move forward into the twilight era of this series, where we come to one of the most important and certainly the most durable question to come out of the conflict, why did it end, or not quite end, in the fashion that it did? To investigate, we need to bring you guys, in a scenic route of course, to spring 1951 and to trace the dialogue, olive branches and vested interests which led ever so gradually to the two parties sitting together at Kaesong. In this episode are several fascinating gems, including a rare military anecdote for us, some notes on Syngman Rhee's regime and an examination on an underrated participant in the diplomacy of the United Nations and Korean War. Without any further ado then, let's get into it. I will now take you to late April 1951, where MacArthur has left the building, and General Matthew Ridgway assumed the command. Instead of the Americans, though, 
we're going to check in with some of the British and Commonwealth regiments who were being swapped around for rest and respite. The song of the week this week is brought to you by 1956. Oh yes, yes indeed. If you just cannot get enough of the Korean War era, if you cannot get enough of When Diplomacy Fails and Zach Twomley in your life, then did you know you can access an hour of extra history content every single month? Several people are signing up every single week for this wonderful opportunity to listen to me natter on about the Suez Crisis at the moment, but also other series such as the Jan Sobieski biography, and, of course, the other half of 1956, where we looked at the de-Stalinization process. It's all very, very interesting. It all fits very well into the Korean War, if I do say so myself. And it serves as a handy sequel to everything that goes down here. So if you'd like to know where your favourite characters ended up and what they did next, then make sure you catch what 1956 has to offer by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. But Zach, you might think, I don't have a fiver to save every month. I'm trying to cut costs where I can, and I can't afford more history, especially when you give me too much as it is. How am I supposed to possibly justify this to my other half, my parents, my friends, everyone else, when you already give me all this content every single week? Well, history friend, here's the deal. You don't actually have to sign up on Patreon if you don't want. I will not send anyone after you. However, I will be super appreciative if you do sign up. But again, if money is the issue, or you're just not really bothered, both of which I completely understand because I'm guilty of both things in equal measure, then by all means support in the several free ways you can use to support this podcast. I laid it all out for you guys in BFIT. B is for blog, E is for email, F is for Facebook, I is for iTunes, and T is for tell someone. So if you do all those things, if you link up with us in those places, then you will be helping to do your part to spread the word about this podcast. And at the end of the day, the best way to make other people listen to this podcast is by word of mouth. I'm very skeptical about Facebook ads, which is why I never use them, because I feel like if a Facebook ad arrives out of nowhere on your Facebook feed, which is already clogged enough as is, you're hardly going to say, oh look, when diplomacy fails, Zach Twomley, I'll listen right away and I'll become a history friend. However... If you tell one of your friends about When Diplomacy Fails and how wonderful it all is, how much fun we have over here, then maybe they'll come and check it out. A personal recommendation is much, much better than an impersonal Facebook ad. So I really would encourage you guys, even if you don't want to do Be Fit or go on Patreon, to simply tell someone. Alrighty guys, without any further ado, the song of the week this week is Alabama Red. It was released by... Sydney Stripling in 1941. It's a good one, guys. Enjoy it, guys, and we will be back afterwards with episode 43 of the Korean War.
On the surface, it seemed like a simple enough plan. The men of the 27th Commonwealth Brigade were in need of respite and would be delivered to Hong Kong piecemeal as the reinforcements then training in Hong Kong to replace them were brought in. Such a swap over was a standard military tactic and it made sense to rotate men whose nerves and energies were well frayed after several months on the front lines. Considering this, it seemed only appropriate that the Argyles of the 27th Brigade, the men who were the first British units to arrive in Korea in late August and who we greeted at that time, should be the first to leave. On their way out, the Argyles had suffered badly under the numerous rearguard actions they had fought against the Chinese. To a man, they were more than happy to see the back of Korea and to let some fresh faces do the job instead of them. When 2nd Lieutenant Barney Henderson, one such fresh face, landed in Korea on the 22nd of April 1951, he was immediately faced with some grave news. The Chinese had launched their strongest counter-offensive yet, the South Korean units meant to hold them back had crumbled, and these fresh-faced men would barely have time to load their rifles before being shipped forward to plug the gap. A recipe for a grand military cock-up if there ever was one. Henderson remembered, adding that, Our drivers were splendid and knew where they were going. No one else did. Through Seoul in the dark, barely a building seemed to be standing. Forlorn Koreans wandered aimlessly around, devastation in every direction. As they arrived at their positions on the 24th of April, Henderson recalled seeing the Argyles moving to the south in transport vehicles with every man cheering, since he knew that his time at the front, momentarily at least, was over. The departure of those veterans, who had been there for so long since the war had began and who had been through all its different changing phases, made it plain that Henderson's unit, the Borderers, had been dumped right in the thick of it. Already in the distance, the sounds of rifle fire and vague shouts could be heard, as they were instructed to hold the line, and given just two maps to share between their entire unit. From their position, Henderson could see several South Korean units streaming back towards their line. These were the remnants of the Republic of Korea's 6th Division, which had been tasked with holding the line for the space of time it took the British and Commonwealth forces to rotate. Henderson's unit, the Borderers, was composed of Australian soldiers with artillery support from a New Zealand battalion and a British officer. Before the chaos of the landing had greeted them, many in his unit had planned to mark Anzac Day on the 25th of April with some significant ceremony, including inviting the Turkish Brigade to take part. These plans would evidently have to be postponed, and Henderson, much like his peers, was not well pleased. Barney Henderson was experiencing this new phase of the Korean War in all its terrible glory, where the back-and-forth nature of the conflict had reached its apex. The next phase, that of stalemate, would follow in the next few months, after both sides had expended much more resources, lives and energy. By the 20th of May 1951, it could be reasoned that the communists seemed to have run out of steam. All along the line, even the shaky South Korean units managed to achieve success as they advanced northwards, virtually unopposed. Following on from Operations Killer and Ripper, Operation Piledriver successfully gained what was referred to as the Iron Triangle, that group of three defensive positions just north of the 38th parallel. The ground that had been gained was impressive, but in Washington the Joint Chiefs had already made plain their policy. There would be no second surge towards the Alley River. Instead the aim was to bring about an end to the fighting and a return to the status quo. The mission of 8th Army was to inflict enough attrition on the foe to induce him to settle on these terms. Settlement was the order of the day, a goal discerned by General MacArthur when he had noted the lack of willingness from Washington to commit any solid reinforcements, or on the level of numbers necessary, to unify the peninsula. Douglas MacArthur had lost his job for several reasons, but one of the major reasons was because his vision for Korea was so conflicted with that of the executive. In Washington, with the primary aim being massive armament increases, holding the line had been enough. With the ball in their court from late May, the decision was now to coerce the enemy to settle, however unpopular this may have seemed. Of course it should go without saying that by early summer 1951, the varied participants in the Korean War 
were not fans of the suggestion that they should try to advance across the 38th parallel in force once more. While the 38th would indeed be crossed, it was made plain that this was a different offensive to before. General Matthew Ridgway was not interested in eliminating the enemy from Korea and unifying it under Syngman Rhee, but in stopping on what I believe to be the strongest line on our immediate front, as he put it to his subordinates and to Washington. This reserved goal was precisely what Washington and the Allies wanted to hear. The pressure of the war and the sheer cost it was exacting upon the Allies to fight it was something to behold. In almost all cases, the United States was shouldering the cost of the war for its allies, on the understanding that this payment would be returned in time. The tireless diplomatic campaign which American agents engaged in was designed to rally its supporters in the United Nations to its side, and then hold them there even during difficult political times. On the 1st of February, following a great deal of American lobbying, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution condemning the People's Republic of China as aggressors in the Korean Peninsula. The British and their Commonwealth allies, beleaguered and eager to remain on Washington's good side for their own reasons, had gradually been persuaded to support this resolution, even though it conflicted with their individual policies towards the Chinese. To some it may have seemed as though several different Truman administrations were operating from Washington, because there seemed to be so many contradictory policies in play. As the historian Michael Lutzker noted, though, these contradictions were a natural product of the situation which the US president faced. Lutzker noted, The Truman administration found itself caught between UN pressures to reduce the threat of a larger Far East war and congressional critics who passed resolutions in both houses of Congress condemning China as an aggressor. While he had dispensed with MacArthur by mid-April, thus restoring some Allied confidence in the American command, it was still important to maintain diplomatic pressure on the Chinese, thus the resolutions emanating out of the UN General Assembly. While Truman by no means wished to see men needlessly suffer and die, he was also mindful of the importance of maintaining the pressure by establishing a strong defensive line from which point peace overtures would then be easier to wrest from the Chinese. In other words, although some diplomatic moves may seem provocative on the surface, and although the series of offensive launched by Ridgway in the first half of 1951 may appear to contradict Truman's core policy objectives, it was still important not to straight up lose the war through mismanagement. Even if an advance towards the Yalu was not planned again, it was still necessary to give the impression to the Chinese that the Allies were not about to slacken in their determination to defend their allies. The Chinese could come and take it, but they would have to pay the price. Who would be willing to pay this price? That was the question. How long would the political will of the United Nations last in the face of repeated Chinese offensives? Could they hope to outlast Beijing's seemingly endless manpower reserves? And was this conflict even worth it, with a changing of the goalposts to a status quo anti-Belm arrangement that would keep Korea divided anyway. What was it all for? To save Syngman Rhee's utterly corrupt and dictatorial regime? For every Allied government that had a soldier on the ground, it was costing that government $14.70 per man per day. And even while Washington signaled its acceptance to settle debts after the conflict, the mounting debts would still have been watched nervously by European and other governments, still coping, by the way, with the depressing aftermath of the Second World War. One stark example of the importance of expenses was given when a Filipino regiment was ordered to lay down artillery support for the Turkish Brigade, only to refuse on the grounds that the Filipino government could not afford to expend such ammunition in the vast quantities which were required. If concern about the cost and scale of the war for these post-war governments was one thing, disenchantment and hostility towards Syngman Rhee's regime was another issue entirely. While they had initially been sold intervention through the lofty idea of rushing to the defence of an embattled regime, which had been the victim of communist aggression and needed their aid, Allied soldiers, Americans among them, came to question whether they were in fact fighting for the right reasons. In circumstances not dissimilar to those of the Vietnam War, the brutal, repressive tactics of Rhee's regime, his dictatorial hold on power, and the corruption which laced its officials 
muddied the waters on the question of who the bad guy really was here. There was much apprehension among Allied soldiers when they crossed the 38th parallel that the goal of unifying the peninsula under Rhee's regime was far from a noble cause. Reports sent to the British Foreign Office of several politically charged murders, in addition to direct evidence of massacres of several prisoners at once, represented not merely a shocking sight, but also confirmation to many that Rhee's regime was no better than Kim Il-sung's, and that the culture of the Koreans was alienating those who would once believed enthusiastically in Seoul as a democratic bulwark against communist expansion. Everything we saw of the Korean people, recounted one British lieutenant, was sad. This sadness turned to rage, though, when Syngman Rhee gave his response to the dismissal of General MacArthur in late April. Having looked up to MacArthur as the saviour of our race, it is understandable that Rhee would have been a bit peeved to see the old general go. Yet Syngman Rhee's behaviour was typically hot-headed, as it drew upon all the falsehoods and rumour which MacArthur's staff had put about in the months before regarding British complicity with the Chinese to undermine the American position. The British troops have outlived their welcome in my country, Syngman Rhee spat to the London Sunday Times in late April 1951, adding, They are not wanted here any longer. Tell that to your government. The Australian, Canadian, New Zealand and British troops all represent a government which is now sabotaging the brave American effort to liberate fully and unify my unhappy nation. Rhee's lack of sensitivity to the realities of the Allied political situation, not to mention the fact that British and Commonwealth soldiers had just sacrificed their lives to defend his unhappy nation during the Battle of Im Jin, caused a storm of anger in the British and Commonwealth armed forces. Of the reaction to Rhee's embarrassingly uninformed tantrum, one letter to the British Foreign Office in particular deserves mention. This was sent by Bombardier Adam Humphreys of the 170 Independent Mortar Battery, who said the following effective words. Dear Sir, a few hours ago the Sunday Times, dated the 6th of May 1951, arrived at the battery, and the very first article that was read by myself was headed, South Korean President Denounces Britain. I take it, sir, that you have read this article, and ask you to put yourself in my position. I am a reservist, called back to the armed forces, parted from my family, to take part in a conflict which my whole train of thought said was wrong when the UN forces crossed the parallel for the first time. The stand of the 28th British Brigade is so very fresh in my mind. Am I to go into the next conflict and possibly become a battle casualty for a cause one is not in full agreement with? Knowing the President Syngman Rhee decries the efforts we have made, tells the world that the British are unwelcome, and the sacrifices we have made thought so very little of. My own personal opinion? Bring the British forces back, and use them where their efforts would be fully appreciated. The bitterness of Humphreys, the understandable bitterness, was echoed by the letters home of other soldiers who wrote to their MPs urging them to bring the matter up in Parliament. Why should we fight for a figure who doesn't even appreciate our efforts, the risks we take, or our sacrifices? The question was perfectly valid, but as Rhee had increasingly made clear, shut off as he was from such of the realities of the war, he did not care who he offended or pushed away. Whether this was because he believed that the Americans, at the end of the day, would hold the Allied lines together, or simply because he did not think before he spoke, is not clear. What is clear is that Rhee began a campaign of political consolidation at home as the Korean War continued, and he used the threat of North Korean insurgents behind the lines in South Korea to justify his repressive policies. A mere segment of Rhee's political misbehaviour deserves mention here, since it serves to give a good indication of what, deep down, Rhee's leadership of Korea would have been like. South Korea's National Assembly made repeated efforts to control Syngman Rhee and to bring in some greater semblance of democratic rule. The opposition politicians in South Korea sought to do this by removing martial law in the white areas where it was still in force, after having been brought in in the first place by Rhee's presidential decree. After much political bullying, blatantly illegal coercion of his opponents and the heavy use of the armed police, Rhee would actually manage in late May 1952 to grant more powers to himself to bypass the assembly in the future 
and to secure his reign against any potential challengers. On the 5th of August 1952, following the latest sham election in which other candidates had been scared underground, Syngman won 70% of the vote, and he seemed poised to sit as South Korea's president for life. After this, official corruption and embezzlement in South Korea ran totally unchecked, and as embarrassing as this was for the United States and their allies, Syngman Rhee made it plain, time and again, that he couldn't care less. In the face of all these objections, some very reasonably justified, it was imperative that Washington maintain a strong stand and continue to rally its allies together. If the United States could not manage to maintain unity among its allies, and if the very detachments from the United Nations member states began to drop off and return home in protest against Rhee's regime, or for some other reason, then the Chinese would certainly capitalise upon the resulting nosedive in morale. What Washington searched for then in the midst of Ridgeway's successes in late May and June was a chance to begin peace talks from a strong position where the Chinese could clearly see that the Allies were still united and still determined to push them back, and where they held the superiority and firepower necessary to pursue the war. The psychological pressure was everything at this phase, just as it had been so important on the ground in the initial phases of the war, when the United States dropped thousands of leaflets on the North Korean People's Army just 24 hours after Truman announced that the United States and United Nations would come to Syngman Rhee's aid. Washington may have rolled back its leaflet dropping by summer 1951, but its State Department was more than willing and able to drop bombs instead. The military pressure maintained by the Allied Air Force in Korea was something to behold, and its dominance of the skies dominated the strategic concerns of the communists, who were forced to move as carefully and silently as they could, and almost exclusively at night. The two years of stalemate which followed the initial truce talks began in July 1951, and it was sometimes all that the United States was able to do to keep the pressure up, as bombs and terrifying new weapons like napalm were introduced on a wider scale than ever before. The scenes caused by the devastation would have been eerily familiar to any veteran or expert on the Vietnam War. Much like in that conflict as well, the Allied forces were unable to turn the tide with their air superiority, even while the effective use of it did constrain the options and tactics of the Communists. There was, as the United States was learning, only so much that a mass bombing campaign could do to an impoverished peasant country. Our narrative does not focus on such air wars, although we do understand and appreciate that some of you guys literally live for this stuff. You've already told me how interested you are in the air war in Korea and how you wish I would cover more of it, but how about we compromise and I bring you guys a really obscure nugget from the diplomacy instead, since that's what I'm better at really. It's time to talk about the will-they-won't-they diplomatic status of India. The story of the peace reached at Korea would be incomplete, believe it or not, without India's immensely underrated role in bringing both sides to the table and thereafter solving their problems. So let's talk about the Indians now. In the past, we have heard of the position of the Indians largely through its ambassador in Beijing, a Mr. K.M. Panikar, who proved especially useful as a back-channel for the Chinese to communicate their more secretive ideas for peace to the Americans. Thanks to Panikar's position, it became easy after the event to argue that the Indian official was a communist sympathiser, but until Dean Acheson decided he had outlived his usefulness, the Panikar Channel, as it was called, was the sole means through which diplomatic contact could be made between Washington and Beijing. This also meant by default that the Indians themselves were an important voice both in world affairs and, more specifically, in the United Nations Security Council, where they resided as a temporary member of that body, along with four other members, during a significant portion of the Korean War. Throughout the entirety of the conflict, New Delhi's aim was to limit the war and ensure it did not escalate out of the peninsula. In addition, India's ambassador to the United Nations, a Sir Benegal Rao, attempted to tread a kind of third way between the Western powers led by Washington and the Communists led variably by the Chinese and Soviets. While Rao sought to pursue this policy, it was his superior in New Delhi, the towering Indian statesman Jawaharlal Nehru, who developed and refined it. India was to have its foreign policy directed by Nehru, who served both as 
Prime Minister and Foreign Minister during this period, and he was determined to find ways for the Indian lobby to make its influence felt. Sometimes this looked like cooperation with the Commonwealth allies, of which India remained at this stage a member. Other times, the growing Arab-Asian bloc was where Nehru's policies received the most attention. All the while, between these fragile and fickle blocs were the true targets of Indian diplomatic pressure, those representing communist powers, and those led or influenced by the pull of the United States. If Nehru was to ensure that India was not pulled into a policy she did not wish to pay for or be seen to publicly support, then he had to impress upon the Americans the importance in allowing the Indians to go their own way. This, as it happened, was an attitude totally unacceptable to Washington when the war broke out. As far as the US State Department was concerned, you were either with us or you were against us. Nehru felt pressured enough by the United States and the Commonwealth to vote in favour of the UN Security Council resolutions on the 25th of June, 1950. Almost immediately, though, Nehru began to regret his decision, and he actually objected to the wording of the resolution of the 27th of June, two days later, which recommended that members of the United Nations furnish such assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repel the armed attacks and restore international peace and security to the area. We have, of course, examined these events in great detail already, so we won't dwell on them any longer. But what is interesting is that while the approval of the resolution of the 25th of June brought great hopes in Washington that New Delhi was falling into line, the decision made by Ambassador Rao to abstain on the 27th of June aroused fears in Washington that India intended to follow its own policy regardless of the consequences to American interests. There was indeed no apparent third way or understanding in the United States of the immense difficulties which Nehru's country faced in foreign politics. Considering Nehru's limited resources and the vulnerable position of his country, only independent for three years by the time the Korean War broke out in 1950, it is hardly surprising that Nehru pursued the policy he did. Yet, for Nehru, things only got worse and more limited for India as the Truman administration began to implement its plans for the realisation of NSC 68, starting with the armed intervention legitimised by the United Nations into Korea. From early July 1950, as we saw, the United States then began asking for more armed support from the United Nations allies to help defend Syngman Rhee's regime and for all these forces to be placed under General MacArthur's command. Nehru was horrified at the escalation of American demands. Suddenly, India and nations like it were being called upon to send men and materials to a cause they knew barely anything about and cared next to nothing for. There were also questions which would have to be asked about the impact any Indian action would have on the country's relationship with the Chinese or even with Moscow. Thanks to India's position as the largest third world country, a status inherent with several contradictions, of course, New Delhi had some pull with other states just coming out of colonisation, and this influence would only grow in the future. For now, though, Nehru had limited options and plenty of difficult questions to juggle. As aghast as Nehru was at the United States' proposal to the UN Security Council to appoint MacArthur as Supreme Allied Commander and to gather military allies together for a defence of South Korea, he instructed his official in the UN Security Council to abstain rather than vote against it. Neutrality meant making liberal use of the right to abstain, but it also meant that there was a potential to make enemies out of both sides. Since the Soviets returned to the UN Security Council in early August, it at least meant that there would be no overarching Allied pronouncements on Korea, which would compel India to pick a side. The Soviet veto ensured the commitments India would be expected to make, for the moment at least, would not increase. In addition, the Soviets and the Anglo-Americans descended into a kind of propaganda war, with both sides tearing rhetorical lumps out of the other, but not doing much of importance. To Nehru this was unacceptable, and it represented to him a waste of the opportunity to do something about Korea. As early as the first week of August 1950, when MacArthur's limited forces struggled against the full force of the North Korean People's Army's enthusiastic assaults, Nehru was proposing that a committee be established, formed by the non-permanent members of the UN Security Council, to discuss the proposals passed by the Security Council from an objective standpoint. 
Nehru's argument was that, since these six non-permanent members of the Security Council, them being Yugoslavia, Norway, Cuba, Egypt, Ecuador, and India, since they had no vested interests in Korea, they would be less biased and free to judge how a potential face-saving truce could be arranged in Korea, which would be acceptable to all. In 2013, the historian Robert Barnes wrote an article on India's participation through the United Nations in Korea, and in the process he filled one of the yawning gaps in the literature of that conflict. Barnes wrote as to the outcome of Nehru's proposed committee for the non-permanent members that Indian attempts at resolution, however, were quickly nipped in the bud by the permanent members. Dean Acheson argued that a committee of non-permanent members would only delay bringing about North Korea's compliance with the existing United Nations Security Council resolution, and that the most interested parties had to decide what to do regarding Korea. British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan concurred with this analysis, and refused to let Commonwealth loyalties get in the way. The Soviets as well expressed little interest, and Ambassador Rao grudgingly abandoned his proposal. The reason why I cite this blocking of Indian efforts to mediate some peace agreement or reduction in the conflict is to demonstrate an unfortunate fact about Nehru's diplomacy. India, like several other players, was overtaken not just by the pace of events, but also by the determination of the important powers to follow their intended policies. Only later on, when the United States had seen its defence budget balloon in size, would Acheson approve looking into the possibility of compromise, and only then would the British feel confident enough to follow suit. The Soviet course here can be explained by Stalin's cagey efforts at this point to sabotage the North Korean war effort on the ground. This would be far less effective or impactful if the fighting was suddenly put on hold, and this explains why Stalin was against putting the fighting on hold. Nehru then occupied himself with a new pressure campaign, when it became clear that the United Nations General Assembly, rather than the Security Council, would now be the forum for debate and discussion of Korea. With the Security Council tied up in rhetorical grandstanding after Jacob Malik had returned, Nehru and Ambassador Rao could hope that their influence with the minor nations represented in this body would result in more support when it came time to propose non-binding but still important resolutions. Over the last few months of 1950, though, Indian concerns were dominated first by the brilliant success of Incheon and the rapid escalation of Allied aims in Korea, and then by the shattering of these aims in the face of massive Chinese intervention. In both cases, Nehru's government showed the greatest horror at the conflict being extended or pursued in one way or the other. India's interests lay in seeing neither bloc succeed in its aims, for this would surely sow division and instability in Asia, and may leave Mao Zedong resentful and determined to escalate the war. Again, Nehru was limited by what he and his government did not know, but they were at least in a privileged position with the Chinese, as they represented the sole diplomatic link between Beijing and the West through Ambassador Panikar. Panikar was repeatedly told by Zhou Enlai that to advance over the 38th parallel and up to the Yalu would represent a grave threat to the People's Republic of China's security, and that China would respond with force to defend its interests, if necessary. Panikar communicated these notes with much haste from early October, using it to explain why he had abstained from voting in favour of the 7th of October resolution, which called for the crossing of the parallel and for all appropriate steps to be taken to ensure the conditions of stability throughout Korea. The Anglo-American effort here was supposedly taking its cue from the UN resolution of 1947, which had attempted to unify Korea under elections, watched over by the United Nations. While the resolution did pass on the 7th of October, the Indian abstention was a notable blip. And it was from this point that Dean Acheson sought to discredit him. The tune that Panikar was singing was too close to the truth of the matter, as the Truman administration's intelligence had made clear. It was very clear that Washington intercepted and decoded the cable between Mao Zedong and Kim Il-sung on the 8th of October, which signalled Chinese willingness to support and defend their North Korean ally. While Washington privately hushed these warnings in case they spooked its allies, publicly, Zhou Enlai's threats were dismissed as mere pontification. The process to create the ideal set of circumstances continued, 
as the Allies marched towards the Alu, and not even the concerns of the British could stop MacArthur's push. According to Barnes, Nehru was not deterred, and he sought more than ever to use the United Nations to end the Korean War. When the initial Chinese intervention began in late October, and the United States called on China to withdraw their forces, the Indians attempted to broach the subject with Beijing to find out what Mao Zedong's end goal was. Had they intervened in Korea to simply prove a point, or did the Chinese have wider ambitions for the conflict? Nehru suspected that the Chinese had intervened only to protect their borders, and he gave the Chinese a chance to say so with a resolution enabling the British to meet with a representative of the People's Republic of China in the Security Council. When the People's Republic spurned this overture, Nehru was deeply concerned, and when the Chinese invaded in massive overwhelming force a month later, he was completely shocked. As he had done before, Nehru sought desperately to tread the middle ground, abstaining when a vote was put before the Security Council, which branded the People's Republic of China as the aggressor. With the new phase of the Korean War in full swing, Rao deliriously stuck to the script. The book was passed to the UN General Assembly once more, and alongside its Commonwealth peers, the Indians now endeavoured to draft a rival resolution to that posed by the Americans. Rao and Nehru both worked tirelessly on this draft, and managed to draw out Dean Acheson, who conceded that a committee to talk about a possible ceasefire and other sensitive issues in Asia should be created. Rao jumped at the chance to incorporate an American suggestion and signify his willingness to cooperate, but in the end, these efforts came to nothing, as Acheson always suspected would happen due to the Chinese suspicion of anything which went on in the United Nations, so long as Beijing didn't have a seat on the Security Council. This ceasefire committee idea by no means disappeared though, and it would reappear again in the future, but in the first week of January, the immediate threat was the news of the Chinese and North Korean advance back over the 38th parallel, with Seoul falling on the 4th of January for the third time in the conflict. Nehru had tried several times to reach some kind of compromise, In the Commonwealth Minister's meeting in early January 1951, he talked for some length with an unwell Ernest Bevan, the British Foreign Secretary, about the possibilities. Ernest Bevan, being an ardent anti-communist, was nonetheless as wary as the rest of his colleagues at the danger of escalating the conflict and seeing it spread from the Korean Peninsula to other theatres. Nehru insisted that the Chinese would accept nothing less than a ceasefire on their terms, but he was cautioned by Ernest Bevan against making it too easy for Beijing. Would India approve of a draft from the Commonwealth side which criticised the Chinese for intervening to appease the Americans, but which also called for the world powers to discuss the situation and reach some kind of peace settlement? Although Nehru thought this idea was a bit vague, he went along with it to demonstrate his loyalty to his Commonwealth peers. In other news, Nehru's ceasefire committee was making more headway after its initial spurning by the Chinese. Nehru's committee proposed that if the Chinese would agree to a ceasefire, then issues such as Korea and even Taiwan could be negotiated on. Robert Barnes wrote here that Dean Acheson went along with this idea because it gained so much support in the UN General Assembly, where it was primarily discussed owing to the deadlock in the Security Council, but again, Acheson only went along with these moves because, in my view, he expected that Beijing would reject them, as Beijing did. The United States now appeared more willing to listen to reason than the stubborn Chinese did, but by early 1951 the Truman administration was facing some considerable pressure from the public to act more decisively in Korea and against the Chinese. The pressure was sourced mostly from the dire military situation and the set of reversals which the Allies had endured by mid-January. To ease the pressure for a moment, Acheson put a political ploy forward which aroused still more horror from Nehru, this being the draft of a fresh resolution for the UN General Assembly which would brand the People's Republic of China as the aggressor in the Korean War. The language was important for the sake of easing tensions and diplomatic cooperation in the future. It was one thing to condemn the aggressive act of one power, It was quite another to attempt to brand one state as THE aggressor. Such an act would permanently tarnish the Sino-American relationship during the Korean War, not just because of the rhetoric, but also because of the largely symbolic sanctions which accompanied the condemnation of Chinese policy. 
Nefru saw this resolution, understandably enough, as a significant step back, and he attempted to use all of his contacts to block the resolution. Again, it was the Indians who received a cable from Zhou Enlai with a proposal for a ceasefire if all issues in Asia were tabled at some conference in the future. It was then Ambassador Rao who proposed that debate on America's inflammatory resolution be delayed by 48 hours so that Zhou Enlai's proposal could at least be considered. While Acheson believed it was only a delaying tactic by the Chinese, this proposal was accepted by the majority of the UN General Assembly. Evidently, the Indians had tapped into the fears of their peers in the General Assembly, and they were not alone in seeking a speedy end to the world conflict. Yet, it was during the 48-hour pause that the true reason behind Zhou Enlai's proposal became clear. The Chinese offensive, once so terrifying, had run out of steam. In the midst of a suspected counter-attack in the works in Allied High Command, it seemed foolish to break now with a ceasefire, far better instead to pile pressure on the Chinese. So it proved, as the defeat of the Indian attempts at moderation were felt bitterly, but came at a time of a turn in fortune for the Allies. The Indians and other sceptics were appeased by Atchison's promise that the act of branding China an aggressor and the act of imposing sanctions would not occur simultaneously, which would give everyone time to still treat. If Acheson pursued this resolution and approved the branding of the People's Republic of China as an aggressor because he believed it would relieve some of the domestic pressures on the Truman administration, then he was largely correct. Once the dire few weeks of late 1950 to early 1951 passed, public opinion in the United States became less critical of their government, especially when news of General Ridgway's offences began to make public headlines. The public were happy to see their boys advancing again just like the old days, even if they believed Truman was still too soft on China. All of these developments did not greatly help to ease Nehru's nerves. He remained convinced of the need to develop a third way, and when the General Assembly seemed poised against his moves, he attempted to rally the outcasts of the General Assembly by cozying up to the Arab-Asian powers and drafting another resolution calling for a committee which would hear the Chinese peace proposals. When this resolution was put forward in the General Assembly, Ambassador Rao found himself awkwardly voting for it alongside the Soviet bloc, while the United States and their allies looked indignantly on from the other political side of the room. This was an immensely uncomfortable experience for Rao, and it hadn't even been worth it because his proposal was defeated. All told, India's peace pressure campaign had failed. The United States even managed to pass through the resolution which imposed limited sanctions on the People's Republic, though these proved largely symbolic as we said, and had more impact on Chinese tempers than Chinese wallets. As Robert Barnes notes though, in the run-up to summer 1951, India had made a significant stand against both the Anglo-American bloc and against any effort by the Chinese to escalate the war. As Barnes wrote, India's attempts to prevent the United Nations from adopting a risky policy were not completely fruitless. India had united with its Commonwealth and Third World partners, forcing the Truman administration to prioritise attempts to bring about a negotiated ceasefire over punitive action. Also, pressure from India and other members had delayed action at the United Nations at a crucial juncture, since by the time the United Nations had adopted the Aggressor Resolution against China, The military crisis had abated and public, congressional and administrative calls in the United States for retaliation against the Chinese had begun to subside. In other words, in spite of that faux pas where he was voting against the Allies and on the side of the Soviets and Communists in the General Assembly, it wasn't all bad news for the Indians. The Indians had ensured that things didn't get too out of hand. Although I have to add that, considering the selective intervention of the United States, it is unlikely that Washington would have permitted either the Security Council or the General Assembly to pass resolutions or affect the situation in Korea without its approval first. India's efforts had thus demonstrated the dramatic pull which the United States, at least for the moment, possessed in the United Nations. Yet Nehru and Rao remained undeterred and were still eager to bring about a negotiated ceasefire. On the 1st of June 1951, the United Nations Secretary-General declared that if a ceasefire could be required, which was roughly held along the 38th parallel, 
then the United Nations would consider its job in Korea to be done. On the 7th of June 1951, Dean Acheson told a Senate committee that UN forces in Korea would accept an armistice on the 38th parallel, which was another way of saying that Washington would accept it. The gauntlet had been thrown down for someone to take the next step, and this was taken, believe it or not, by the Soviets. On the 23rd of June 1951, Jacob Malik, that Soviet ambassador to the United Nations Security Council, with a strange attendance record, offered the olive branch by proposing a ceasefire in Korea. It was the most important thing that the Soviets had done in the UN Security Council since they had returned. If Nehru was surprised that such a possibility for peace had emerged outside of his direct control after so many months of trying, then he did not hold any reservations. A ceasefire was still a ceasefire, no matter who was proposing it. If the Soviets were putting it forward, then that surely meant it also had the tacit blessing of the Chinese, and it was therefore to be taken seriously. The Anglo-American bloc didn't need to be told twice. I believe... General Ridgway had said on the 20th of May, when the final significant communist offensive had run out of steam, that for the next 60 days the United States government should be able to count with reasonable assurance upon a military situation offering optimum advantage in support of its diplomatic negotiations. Nehru hoped he would be proven correct. By the 10th of July 1951, the two delegations of the United Nations and the communists sat down to talk at a place called Song. If this was a new phase of the Korean War, then it was to prove the longest, dreariest, most excruciating and most exhausting phase yet. Next time, history friends, we will resume our coverage of these talks, having brought our story up to the point that they began through a handy Indian lens, which will become useful later. I hope you'll join me for the next episode then, but until then, my name is Zach and this has been the Korean War episode 43. Thanks for listening to this very chunky episode, history friends. You're the best, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 